0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm twenty-seven. As I accidentally skipped this Psalm last week, we're returning to it. Once again, and once again, we find that this is a Psalm of David, and again, you should be thinking of the office David holds as the king that this is the prayer of the Davidic king. It should help us to understand how we can see how our Savior himself would have heard these words and seen them as testifying to his person and work. Psalm 27, a Psalm of David. He says this, "...the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear?" The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me in order to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet will I be confident. There is but one thing that I have asked of the Lord, one thing that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. For the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we give careful attention to your word, we pray that we with all diligence uh, attend uh, to these wonderful things that we might see our Savior and therefore be taught how to pray in Christ. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think we all have had unfulfilled longings in our particular lives, be it at one point or over the course of the totality of our lives? What is it uh, that you long for? What is it that if you could have but one request granted, what would you make of that request? I think for many of us, there's a tendency to think if I only had X, fill in the blank, then I would finally be free to pursue the Lord. If the Lord just gave me this thing, then I could pursue all these greater things. And yet, I think this psalm serves as a helpful corrective for us this evening because we see that the Davidic king pursues the Lord and seeks Him above all things even while he is surrounded by his foes. When he is assaulted by a surrounding army, when he is falsely accused in the judicial courts, he nevertheless remains fixed on one thing, to see the beauty of the Lord and the splendor of holiness. Here we are given directive and how to pray, and how to shape our prayers even in the midst of discouragement, even in the midst of misery, uh, even as we await the, uh, an answer from on high. I'd like to take the psalm into two particular parts this evening. First, I'd like us to consider the matter of uh, David's shelter. You see here in the first six verses. And then finally, the matter of David's salvation in verses 7 to 14. So, shelter and salvation. Once again, we have uh, found ourselves, as it were, eavesdropping on yet another prayer of the Messianic king. That's what's going on. Here we find the Davidic son, or the, uh, the Davidic king, praying to the Lord. And in this, as it is inspired Scripture, we are being taught how to pray. Of course, we have to consider what the particular context is in this scenario. Here, this particular, in this particular situation, the Messiah, the King of the people of God, is being led into the fray alone to fight His enemies. And as he fights his enemies alone, he is himself surrounded on all sides. Though he is surrounded, he remains confident as he clings to the Lord as his light and his salvation. We see here in these opening verses martial imagery. It's the imagery of battle and warfare. Here... The Messiah is thrust into the midst of deep crisis and conflict. And yet he remains confident in the midst of that crisis as he calls upon the Lord and boasts in his God as being his light and his salvation. I just want you to consider for a moment what does it mean to call upon God as our light? Well, what is it that light does? particularly when you are in the dark. Light illuminates the path. And for about a decade or so after graduating college, every New Year's, me and my college buddies would, uh, every uh, uh, January, end of December, January, over, over the New Year's holiday, uh, go down to Juniper Springs in central Florida and go camping. It sounds kind of unrealistic in Oregon uh, to go camping that time of year. Uh, but when it is a, uh, only a frigid 68 degrees by day, uh, it's something that you're able to do in the great state of Florida. And what we found ourselves, of course, in the middle of the night, uh, the restroom to the campsite is uh, several hundred yards down a dark trail. And so if you didn't want to fall into one of the ditches or uh, trip on a rock, you would carry your flashlight with you. It is the thing that lights the way, that sets your path out in front of you. Even the smallest light gives you some sense of direction of what is before you step by step. And here, now the Messiah speaks of the Lord as being His light, the one who leads Him through the darkness. The one who provides continual direction, who steadies Him with His eye who leads him to the place of salvation. As David calls upon the Lord as his mighty fortress. And here we find Israel's king surrounded by enemy forces. As as he is surrounded by the enemy forces, his heart pricked as it were bursts into song pleading for one desire to be granted. The very thing he prays, though, is perhaps not what we'd expect, at least not immediately. He says, O oh Lord, I delight to dwell in your temple all the days of my life, that I might behold the beauty of my God. Here, David expresses a longing, as it were, to be home. How many of us, uh, in the midst of suffering or misery, find ourselves late at night just thinking, Uh, that the only place you would want to be is to be in the safety of your father's home. Here, David is not asking for an overnight stay. He is not pleading for a fortnight sojourn, but he is pleading with the Lord asking that, he, that the Lord would make the dwelling place of God David's own personal habitation for the rest of his days. Here David prays that he might see and behold the Lord's beauty. What is it that makes the Lord so beautiful? Him who is invisible, as the Scriptures attest. What is it that makes the Lord the object of David's deepest affections and delights? David says he sees the beauty of the Lord located clearly in a particular place. The temple. Here in the midst of the temple, all the symbols of redemption are brought to the foreground. Uh, You read 1 Kings when we are told of the construction of the temple. Consider all the arboreal imagery that resounds as Solomon himself constructs a temple and he judges in the midst of a forest, his throne room being called the Forest of Lebanon, situated between two trees in a garden, and the features of the temple itself, the temple proper. As the high priest would make his way from the outer courts, into the sanctuary. As he passes his way through the whole, into the Holy of Holies, he is surrounded by a wall of water on both sides. These vials of water that stand about this high, all these pictures that remind him not only of creation, but of redemption that the path into the inner sanctum, as it were, is through the great exodus, the Lord's own deliverance as He opens up that new and living way that sinners might be brought, drawn near to worship Him through the work of a great high priest. That through the sacrificial death of another, the Lord has secured a way for sinners to be welcomed into his family. David looks upon these things. He recognizes what they signify. And he says, I want to dwell here all the days of my life. The Lord is my refuge. Not simply a refuge in terms of a mere fallout shelter. You You think of... Uh, particular locations, uh, even this past summer when there was the threat of uh, living out in Sweet Home where the, the, the power to the city was turned off for a couple of days because of the high winds and the heat and the fear that the uh, a transponder would break and, and cause a massive fire. The power was shut off and so what happens? There's all these shelters that are set up in place for if it is too hot in your uh, own home for you to go and find a place of safety, but it is a temporary location. David does not speak of this particular refuge as one does a shelter in the midst of a hurricane. You go until the storm passes, and then you're free to go back and be on your way. The storm is coming, and yet David says, I want to make my permanent residence In the house of the Lord. Here is the house of consummate joy, a place where evil shall never enter and will never dwell. In this place, David is safe. In this place, David is most happy. In this place, David is most secure. In this place, has found communion with the One who fills eternity, and has placed eternity in men's hearts that we might find no rest apart from Him in the temple where His glory dwells. So David prays that he would be hidden from his enemies and delight to commune with the Maker of heaven and earth. As an aside, he does pray for deliverance, but that prayer for deliverance is only secondary to the main thing that he asks for. He's praying for deliverance that he might not die, so that he might live, so that he might see the Lord and the splendor of holiness. And because the Lord answers his prayer, his joy is heightened, and so the Messianic King sings with joy to his God for having delivered him from the surrounding forces. And then the scene shifts. Even though David, as it were, speaks of the great deliverance that has happened, we find ourselves once again in the same situation where he prays this prayer. Verse 7, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious and answer me. David continues to pray, even as he's been delivered, for that one thing above all. That he would seek the face of God. I think perhaps we find a tendency to think of God, of pursuing God and prayers for deliverance as two different prayers. Not so here. In this particular psalm, those prayers intertwine with one another. The king prays for deliverance. But he prays for deliverance for a greater end. Not that he might go about on his own way, but that he might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. And yet, even in the midst of this conflict, we find the Lord Himself speaking to His Son, to the king. And He says to David, Seek My face. The king responds, Your face, O Lord, will I seek. Can you imagine this? Here we have this picture of of the king being surrounded by enemy forces. And even as he's surrounded, he's not fixated. His his eyes are not on uh, the enemies around him. His eyes are on the Lord. And there's this conversation of deep, intimate communion that is transpiring, even as everything is going crazy all around him. All he hears is the voice of the Lord saying, Seek my face. And the Messianic son says, Your face, O Lord, will I seek We should not skip over this or pass over this lightly. I want you to consider the type of prayer that we have before us. I want you to think of what happens and transpires in Exodus 34. Moses, in the heights of Sinai, pleads with the Lord to see his face. And the Lord says, No. Can't do it, Moses. No man may see me and live. And now, we see the Lord Himself calling to His Son, His beloved Son, in whom He is well pleased, saying, Seek my face. The Son says, Your face, O Lord, I will seek. This is a privilege that not even Moses had someone greater than Moses is standing here and speaking in this psalm here we find a reciprocal beckoning a mutual wooing that transcends what is seen at the heights of Sinai and the giving of the law here the king is called to seek the Lord's face not just once but continually continually not just in times of peace, but even as His enemies have surrounded Him. One perhaps is reminded of Peter as he is walking on the water. He loses sight of his Savior and begins to sink. There is, as it were, in the midst of the conflict, a call from the Lord to His Son, to His King, Keep your eyes fixed on me. In many ways, an echo of the very things we considered this morning. Where, were you, where is your treasure set? Is it set on the things of heaven? Or the things of earth? It cannot be both. Here, David prays, do not hide your face from me. As he's given a sight, a privilege that not even Moses had. Do not leave me. Though the waves of trouble roll over me, do not cast me off in your anger, hear David praise. Do not change your ways. Do what you have promised. Hold on to me. Seems to be a certain fear that David himself has had with these failed father figures, as it were. I think here we're reminded as we are given fuller revelation in the New Testament that as we call upon God as our Father, it's not simply that God is a bigger version of our earthly fathers. Quite the opposite. The Lord is the original. He is the archetypal Father of which all human fathers are but a shadow Even our best earthly fathers at times will fail us, yet here we have a God who we can call upon as our Father who will never leave us or forsake us. Here is a love that is more stable, more secure than even the most secure of human relationships. Even when our closest relatives cut and run, here is a God in heaven who never will. Here is one who will never leave us as orphans. Here David prays, Do not leave me, verses 9 and 10, but lead me, verse 11. Deliver me from false witnesses. Here the Scenery has changed in one respect. In the first half of this psalm, uh, the king is surrounded by a foreign army. But here, the king in the second half of this psalm finds himself in the judicial courts as false witnesses are slandering his name and his reputation is being called into question. It might seem like two different arenas, but I think if anyone who has ever been the subject of slander or whispers or false allegations know quite well that it feels like you are in the midst of a war. Here, the enemies of the Messiah have surrounded Him seeking to do Him harm, seeking to bring false charges that He might be put to shame And put to death. And this is in one sense where we are left off in the psalm. As we look at these last two verses, we find the Messiah still waiting with bated breath for that great day of deliverance. Some of your modern translations kind of give verse 13 kind of a, a full, almost like a, as if this is ending on a major note. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It's really a, a breakaway sentence. It goes something like this. What, uh, paraphrase What would I be reduced to if the Lord were not my trust? What hope would there be without God's goodness? It's as almost as if he's left with the thought, what would happen if God were not on my side? And he pauses. And he reflects on his own situation. And so in verse 14, there is an exhortation that the king gives to himself. He speaks to his own heart. He speaks to his own soul. Where he says to himself, take heart, wait on the Lord. That's how the psalm ends. It's it's ending with that expectation of unfulfilled longing. The promise that it's coming, but it has not yet arrived. And yet, even as he awaits his final deliverance, David still remains unmoved. He has placed his hope in the Lord, his face, his his direction, his pursuit is set on seeking the Lord's face, even as he is insulted and assaulted. Here we find echoes of an earlier psalm that we had considered, Psalm 25, where the psalmist says, Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be put to shame, but those who treacherously deal with you without cause will be put to shame. Here, David says to himself as he's awaiting that deliverance, wait on the Lord. Take courage. Don't grow despondent. The Lord will answer. He will save. Say to those who are fearful hearted, do not be afraid. The Lord your God is strong in His loving arms. He is able willing to save and Andrew Bonar in his commentary on this psalm sees echoes of this psalm in John 16 remember our context as we consider here with David David has entered into the fray as a man of war and he finds himself surrounded and yet he remains confident that His salvation is secure, that though He enters into the battle alone, He knows that He is not alone. Consider what our Savior Himself says on the night of His betrayal. Behold, the hour is coming indeed. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and I will be left alone. And yet, I am not alone. For the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you might have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. And isn't that how this psalm ends? Take heart. As the Messiah now speaks in all of His fullness and all of His glory, I have overcome the world. Christ, as He makes His way to the cross, He sets His face like flint to Jerusalem, refusing to be deterred from so many people who seek to set Him off of His intended course. Be it Satan, be it the Pharisees, be it Peter himself. Jesus remains unmoved as His eyes are set on His Father above who has sent Him to do battle as the great representative and champion of His people. And though He goes in as the lone warrior, He returns from the arena as the undisputed champion over death and hell. Because the Messiah will not fear, Neither ought we who are kept safe under his banner. In this world you will have tribulation, our Savior says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And this is certainly the victory that overcomes the world, John writes, even our faith. What we see in the psalm set before us is a training manual, as it were, in learning how to pray and seek the Lord in the midst of conflict, even in the midst of sorrow and tribulation. Here we find that pursuing the Lord is not simply left as a job for monks in monasteries. It is the great privilege of the people of God, with the great hope that on that last day we will see our Savior. And on the day that we see Him, we shall be transformed into His image. Because John writes, for we shall see Him as He is. And so as our Savior teaches us how to pray, how to pray in the name of Christ, there is, as it were, a double exhortation given to the people of God in this psalm. The first is this. Do not wait for things to be perfect. As the old hymn goes, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. We are simply called to come and to turn to Jesus. Not to wait till all of our affairs get in order, not to wait till we pay off all of our debts, not to wait until all of our foes have stopped pursuing us, not to wait until X, Y, and Z till we have a secure slush fund for our retirement, or whatever it is that you think that you really need more than Jesus. The Lord is saying here that even in the midst of great conflict and disarray, the Lord says, seek my face. Do not wait. I think the second exhortation we find is found here in the second half of this psalm. And it is this. Wait. Wait on the Lord. Are you beset with sorrows? Arise and go to Jesus. Wait on the Lord. He will surely come and save. Do not wait for things to be perfect, but go to Christ. But as you plead to the Heavenly Father, Through the ministry of Christ as our great high priest, wait with confidence that the Lord will in fact answer our prayers once and for all on the day of our Savior's grand appearing. When the Lord's beloved Son, the great King of His people, will come and vanquish His foes once and for all and lead us into the heavenly paradise where we will dwell in the tents of the Lord forever. Let us pray. Our Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would seek your face above all things. Uh, Even when tragedy strikes, even when we are beset with so many sorrows, things that we never would have expected or planned, you know the end from the beginning, you still sit enthroned above the floods. So we pray this morning, this evening, uh, that you would bless your people and that you would be to us our chief end and our exceedingly great reward. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.